Welcome to the Matthew Moran podcast. Here I sit down and talk with some of the best photographers, filmmakers, writers, designers, editors, and publishers working in the visual arts. These conversations will give you an insight into the lives of creative professionals and industry experts. It is a chance to hear their story and personal journey in a rapidly changing, highly competitive, but hugely exciting field. I've had the pleasure of working with many of my guests over the years and have learned so much from spending time with them. Not just working together on projects, but having conversations about what it means to be a creative freelancer, the various ways of earning money from your work, sourcing exciting projects, sharing skills through partnerships, and not losing sight of your goals and dreams. This podcast is my chance to share these conversations with you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. My guest today is Keith Wilson. Keith has a rich CV and a tremendous amount of experience working as an editor, writer, and photographer. It was hard to cover his career in a 50-minute podcast. In fact, there was so much that I completely forgot to ask him about Wild Planet Photo, another of Keith's pioneering publications and the first monthly online magazine devoted entirely to wildlife. Keith was the youngest ever editor on the legendary amateur photographer magazine, the founder of black and white photography and outdoor photography magazines. He is a special contributor to N-Photo, the independent magazine for Nikon photographers, and he also writes a regular column for Geographical magazine and is a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society. Keith and I caught up at the Wildscreen Film Festival in Bristol after a busy day presenting on the art of book creation. It was a pleasure to share the stage with Keith and a real pleasure interviewing him too. So we're here uh, in Bristol, just been had a couple of really nice days at the Wild Screen Film Festival. I'm mm. sitting here with Keith in a, an enormous hotel room. We've <laughs> <laughs> been provided this luxury. Yeah, we, we can always you know make the illusion that uh, it's a glamorous life, can't we? Absolutely, of course. Yeah, <laughs> being being the nature photographers, bookmakers that we are. Um, now Keith has been really kind to give up uh, some time to talk to me about his work and um uh yeah it's a it's it's been a real treat and this podcast is very new and I've, I've already got a heavyweight that's what I feel like in, in, in the Gosh. photography and magazine and, and and book publishing world so Keith thanks very much for coming along and um a pleasure sir so why don't we just start mm. at the beginning um you know we've got to be on point with this podcast time's limited Keith actually does have a deadline to reach <laughs> would you believe it um, yeah. during the festival yeah. Um, so again, yeah, thanks so much. So let's go back to the beginning um, and tell us a little bit about uh, your work and what you were interested in as a young kind of upcoming photographer, magazine editor, because it all, it all started in Australia, didn't it? It did indeed. That's the country of my birth. And, um, you know, I was raised in Melbourne, uh, did most of my um, significant education, if you like, uh, in Sydney, and then uh, moved back down to Melbourne. Uh, with the intention of um, of going to university in Melbourne to do a double degree in arts and law. So uh, I was all set on that and enjoying the, the nice hot Australian summer and going surfing and all the rest of it. Uh, but I also was very passionate at that young age uh, about writing. Uh, and, and I had this 
idea. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to earn a living, you know, fr- from writing, from uh, from journalism? And um, so I did apply for cadetships on the daily newspapers uh, in Australia, uh, well, in, in Melbourne primarily, and also with the ABC, which is obviously Australia's equivalent of the BBC, and, um, and also on uh, uh, Channel 7, which is uh, part of the Seven National TV Network. So that was more in hope than anything else, because uh, I knew the chances were slim. But um, cut a long story short, lo and behold, um, uh, you know, I, I was invited in for an interview. The interview must have gone well because a couple of weeks later, I, I then got an offer uh, from the Herald uh, newspaper in Melbourne, which was the daily evening newspaper for the city, to join their cadetship scheme, which is a bit like, you know, an apprenticeship. Right, learning on the job. Learning on the job, full time. And um, so there I was, raw and green at 18, uh, while my mates were still having a long summer's holiday. Um, I was starting my journalistic career in, uh, I think it was the f- first or second week of January um, in 1979. Cutting your teeth. From Cutting my teeth, age, yeah. yes. And it was an extreme, you know, looking back now, I really appreciated even more what a fantastic piece of training it was. I mean, it was four years, four solid years. And, um, and this is hot metal days as well, mm-hmm. as we called it. So you can imagine those wonderful classic film, newspaper films, like All the President's Men and even and the front page yes. where you have that uh, sea of journalists, you know, banging away at their manual typewriters and there's all, you know, this great sense of deadline pressure and tension and people running around and the phones ringing. It was just like that, mm-hmm. I kid you not, because this was an evening newspaper. So we went through the working day, we went through four deadlines. So, Amazing. yeah, so our colleagues on the who were working on the morning newspapers we thought they had the life of riley because they would come in at 10 go home at six and they'd only have one deadline and then they wake up the next morning to see you know if if their story got into the paper or not we went through all that four times during the course of of our shift um so it it was very stressful there's no doubt about it and there were some hard times um but the thing about where photography came into that and that was really my first introduction to uh, photography uh, as, a, as, as a working career, yeah. was the whole point of the cadetship was to give us, as the, the, the youngsters, um, basically a good grounding, a good hands-on experience in all aspects of newspapers. So not just reporting, but also sub-editing, but also uh, you know, caption writing. Mm-hmm. going out on jobs with the photographers and um so at this point you hadn't taken any pictures as a as a kind of press photographer no writing was your, your yeah writing. exactly yeah. exactly uh but you know as things have turned out it's funny isn't it um you know it's the it's in a way I, you know i still do lots of writing but it's all about photography or working with photographers so um my specialism has developed very much about uh, about working in photography uh you know okay i might not be a full-time uh photographer you know with the camera uh like you and and other people i work with but i have done that too Mm -hmm. but it's it's almost like i've become a conduit you're cutting your teeth on the the press floor in melbourne being thrown into these you know (laughs) big 
jobs at the deep end, but no mm. better way of learning, right? And then, oh, it's a fantastic experience, no doubt. Absolutely, yeah. I think there's, there's a, a lot a lot to be said for that and kind of, you know, just being brave and sticking your neck out. And those are skills that you really carry on with you, you know, throughout, throughout anyone's sort of photography mm. career that you do have to be a little bit brave and doing things like presentations and whatnot. <laughs> I'm, getting off, I'm getting off topic a little bit now. And um, I just wanted, yeah, I wondered, so, you know, you've been here a long time. And, yeah, you know, yeah. After, after that experience... How long were you working on the newspaper in Melbourne? Uh, it was just it was about just over four years. You know, right. the, the cadet, cadetship was four years. Yeah. And you know, and at the end of it, if you were deemed to have passed, etc., you were then uh, officially made. You know, basically a, a grade D journalist, which was the the lowest grade. Yeah. And, you know, things in those days were still very uh, quite heavily unionized as well. So it was very much as they were here. Yeah. It was a very much a mirror of uh, the UK. Uh, newspapers in the 19, you know late seventies, early eighties yeah. as well. So um, and that's why, and like so many I um, of my contemporaries, I had the dream of, well, I've got this far, I really like it, yeah. But I want to further my experience elsewhere because sure. if I just stay here at this newspaper, you know, doing the type of stuff they want to steer me into, yeah. um, it won't necessarily go the way I want it. Yeah. And, you know, so when I decided that I was going to, to leave, um, you know, I was only 22. And, but I decided I'm going to get to London because that's where that's so still... So that's what I'm interested in. Yeah, why mm, London? Why, why London? London? Yeah, it's simply because, you know, even today, but probably even more so then, London was the newspaper capital of the world, of the English-speaking world. Um, you know, colossal number of newspapers mm-hmm. and uh, a hub of of media and you know just seemed like the the natural thing mm-hmm. to do so many aussie journalists did yeah. that and it also went the other way you know right. um but and i'd also never traveled outside of australia either um so i thought right kill two birds with one stone yeah so i bought a one-way ticket to hong kong and then took it from there and so um and did and did some wonderful traveling across Asia and um, Eastern Europe and what was then the Soviet bloc, Soviet Union. Kind of giving yourself a gap year in between. Yeah, it wasn't quite a year, but um, <laughs> yeah, I didn't have enough money for that. But um, So you ended up in I ended in up London, in London just in time for the this, summer. Try, you know, trying to get a, a nice job on a big broadsheet, whatever it is. Exactly. And uh, also, while I was traveling, I was honing my own photography skills right. as well, doing travel pictures because I went you know, through India, Nepal, Pakistan, all yeah. those places. And, you know, that was a great education uh, in itself, even though then I didn't know how valuable that would be to what I'm doing now. Sure. Um, and so I arrived in London and uh, went door knocking, uh, trying to get shifts on papers, you know, like the Express and the Times and yeah. all of them, frankly. And... Um, and not having any success, right. which, you know, surprised me. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not like I had any family or friends here as well. I was on my own, right, right. really on my own. Um, anyway, lo and behold, I did manage to eventually um, land, get some uh, freelance sub-editing contracts just that were just one month at a time um, with a magazine publishing house called, what was then Business Press. Um, but it was sort of, but one of the magazines, and they were a wing of a, of the big Reed Empire, 
Reed Publishing Empire. And one of the magazines they published was Amateur Photographer. Right. And they were looking for a news editor, mm-hmm. stroke sub-editor. And I thought, hey, that's I can do that. Uh, and, yes, applied for it, and lo and behold, I got it. Yeah. And that was 1984. Um, and... Um, I mean, that's pretty impressive. You're a young... Yeah. Guy, come out on your own and you've suddenly landed this job. So tell us a bit, a little bit about that. What was that like? Amateur photographer. I knew, you know, to be honest, I knew nothing about amateur photographer. I didn't know it existed. But I learnt very quickly because, you know, five years later, I was the editor of the magazine uh, and the youngest ever editor of the magazine. Um, And when I joined in 84, they were celebrating, it was a good time to join because they were celebrating their centenary. Right. And this magazine, you know, is obvious and still is today. You know, it's um, sort of like it's an institution. It's, yeah. uh, and it's always been published every week since 1884. You know, it's even older than, than Kodak was. So, <laughs> Amazing, yeah. yeah, it's very much one of those pillars of uh, certainly of the British photography scene. There's no yeah. doubt. Um, and so by the time, but, you know, when I became editor in 1989, um Amateur photographer had some real image problems in that um, it was it had a nickname of amateur pornographer, dare I say it. Uh, because I it, you telling me this story. Yeah, it's and it's true. Out. You know, I you know, I can't deny it. And uh, you know, the people who obviously were around there at that time and they'll back me up on this. Um, and it was simply because they they put glamour covers on yeah. it every week and it was selling a humongous number of copies every yeah. week, like n- over 90,000 every week. It's incredible, isn't a it? A weekly photographic magazine. Yeah. So, and we've all, so it was a real money churner because you had all the classified advertising and, and everything. But um, I realised there was an image problem that wasn't sustainable. And so when I became editor, I sort of took the radical step, not immediately, but certainly by within about six months into the job, basically saying no more glamour covers yeah. uh, because I thought, um, and, you know, fortunately the publisher backed me up on this. Well, and that's good, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, selling 90,000 copies, it's really good revenue, but you wanted to make this a more serious photography magazine. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I said, you know, there's, I wanted to convey the message that there's more to photography than, than uh, you know, photographing, you know, 80s style Glamour models, course, and yeah. if you look back at some of those old covers, you know you you do think, oh my God, hasn't the world changed? Yeah, sure. Um, and so that was, you know, that was a brave step, and it didn't help circulation. Sure. Uh, admittedly, mm-hmm. um, but it, but it didn't affect the uh, it didn't affect the advertising revenues either, and the magazine remained extremely profitable, and uh, now. And what I found, which was almost like um, sort of uh, an endorsement, if you like, is it wasn't long. It was a couple of years, one or two years later, suddenly all the other magazines were dropping glamour covers. Right. Um, and, you know, all the monthlies as well. Um, well, it's great, isn't it? It takes... And now, you know, you look at your... Fo- you know, you look at... There's more photography magazines on the shelf yeah. now than there's ever been. None of them have glamour covers, and that's great. And it takes it does take a bit of a brave step, you know, just mm-hmm. to kind of lead by example and you know move away into something a little bit more sophisticated. Yeah, and also an educate. You know, we're talking, of course, pre-internet revolution. This oh is gosh, a, yeah. This is a place where 
photographers are coming to learn and they yes. want to learn about yes. you know what is the latest equipment exactly what are the professional photographers doing what's the latest styles yeah and um you know that's well we started doing things by putting other subjects on the cover yeah. like you know if there was a you know a new you know flagship camera yes you know a camera would be suddenly big on the cover yeah or you know a landscape image on the cover yeah, uh, I remember the first time that happened. It, it did surprisingly well, and Brilliant. we thought, "Oh, yeah. this is good." Wildlife covers, you know. So it suddenly, and being a weekly magazine, you know, you got to be fresh. Yeah, on a very regular basis. So, you know, to show that the this is a new issue, yeah, it makes sense that the image should look a little bit different to the previous yeah. uh, issue as well. So if you're just doing a glamour girl all the time, well, it's not sending the message across that look, there is something new here for you to read. That's right. That's right. And I think, you know, you and I have talked at length and, and you know, we could, we could fill a whole podcast probably just on the <laughs> photographer, but yeah, yeah I'm interested yeah. in, you know, you've got this ambition at such a young age and, you know, we'll fast forward just a little bit mm, because sure. You know, something that I didn't know about you, which I found really interesting because I've had a lot of dealings with outdoor photography and a little bit of a black and white photography. Mm. But, yeah, you set these magazines up. So yeah, tell, yeah. Us a, tell us a little bit about that. And, and, sure. and also what I was interested in is, you know, setting up magazines like that and going to a publisher, you know, having to convince them, <laughs> you know, this is going to be a good idea. You always <laughs> have to convince the publisher because, you know, unless you're doing the whole, you know, as you know, we've been talking about self-publishing books, you yeah. know, in which case, yeah, that all starts and ends with you. Yeah. Um, with a magazine, it's, um, and certainly in those, you know, in those days, you know, you've got to convince the company that you're working for and the publisher that uh, it's worth spending all this money. Yeah. to create this new entity mm-hmm. that you're going to renew say every month with a new issue and there and you know it's a huge investment yeah uh and a lot of magazines not just photography magazines a lot of magazines do not break even until three four years later it's incredible um and um you know they're they're expensive things to do yeah and back in those days we're talking about the pre-digital days it was even more expensive so, um, yeah, so when it came to launching outdoor photography, I had left um, IPC, I'd left Amateur Photographer, I'd edited that every week for nine and a half years. Um, and I had, and I'd launched other magazines for IPC, like Photo Technique and uh, What Camera. Um, but I also had these other ideas where I thought, look, the market needs to be served or photographers particularly need to be served by magazines that are more specific yeah. to their interests rather than just a general overview. Yeah. And that's why I was thinking, look, it's going to be, you know, everyone, all the research had been showing that, you know, beyond photographing your own family and friends, the number one subject of interest amongst the community of photographers in the UK was landscape. Right. And it just seemed obvious to me, well, surely a magazine that's just devoted to landscape and, you know, the outdoors, you know, you can put in bits of wildlife as well. Yeah. It's about people basically going out with their camera to take for pictures, to seek inspiration. It's from the natural world, yet there's no magazine devoted to that in this country. And I sort of think that is a big gap there. There's a niche. And so yeah. did you start, you know, was outdoor photography, was that the primary focus? And then did black and white photography come out of that? Or did you specifically think, you know, there's a market here for two magazines. I'm going to really go for it and set these up at the same time. Very good question. Um, 
it was outdoor photography first, but I did have black and white as a subject in mind at the back of my mind as well because I personally love black and white photography. And my rationale was, you know, this we're talking about the millennium here Mm -hmm. because I'd left um, amateur photographer IPC the back end of 1998. I sort of had a year sort of doing my first um, phase of freelancing, if you like. Yeah. Um, And then I was approached by another publishing house called GMC Publications and, um, you know, had a, and was invited down and they're based in Lewis and East Sussex and I was invited down to lunch and for a chat and just basically they wanted to launch into the photography sector. You know, they just had craft magazines, woodworking magazines, you know, pretty dull stuff, frankly. <laughs> um, but they, they were ambitious. Yeah. They wanted to launch into another sector and they saw photography as being one that was worth doing particularly as things were just starting to change technologically in terms of, yes, digital was around, but it was still very much in, in its That's infancy, right, yeah. still very expensive, and the quality wasn't, wasn't quite, quite there, yeah. was it? Yeah. People were still wedded to their Velvia. That's right. Um, and, um, but, you know, you could see think interesting things are, are on the horizon here. Yeah. The, this could change big time. Um. And so my rationale was also thinking, well, if I'm going to pick a, a subject to launch, I've got to make sure that it can embrace the changes that are about to come. Because when digital did happen, you may remember there were a lot of new magazines that were very digital. Fo- they had digital in their title, didn't yes, they? That's right. Which sort of made sense then. But now it sort of seems superfluous. Yeah, because there's, there's no... It's all digital. Yeah, exactly. Pre- pretty much. Pretty much. So I had to make sure I came up with um, genres of photography and and, and titles that would survive the test of time yes and um, and would be able to embrace this change that was to come mm-hmm. and and black and white was sort of like the lesson in that because as you know as long as photography has been around there's always been black and white imagery yeah and when color uh, really took off you know post-war you know in the 50s 60s yeah. there was still black and white yeah okay so you know it's now it still has a tiny share of the market but it's still there it's still there and that's a really nice you know i love black and white Mm. photography as well and it seemed to be with the digital revolution that it was all color and then you know you do see these trends change like for example in the wildlife photography of the year exhibition they introduced a black and white exactly which has been you know hugely popular yeah um you know i run workshops um in hampstead heath and, and and around internationally as well and a lot of participants that are shooting digitally also you know shoot yeah. black and white and it's it's great you know to see people still using that age-old medium and it's a different way of thinking absolutely of approaching photography yeah and you know i'd already obviously from my ap days you know i knew that uh, you know amongst landscape photographers there were people who shot black and white there was less of it in the wildlife fraternity but it's interesting now there's a lot of yeah, black and white photography, really wildlife photography, and which it's is powerful. and it's powerful yeah. and it's really good. Um, so that's exciting. So, and I, you know, and I'd done special supplements and special issues uh, on AP that were sort of, you know, we, you know, while I was editing it, we did things like a special landscape issue, or a black and white supplement. Right. You know, we did these things that had never been done before because we'd broken away from this bloody glamour thing. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, and that must be really exciting. And actually, yeah. you know, just hearing you talk about 
this kind of stuff now and having these ideas and coming up with creative ideas and not just making a magazine every week or every month mm. or whatever it is is like you know earlier we were talking about producing books but not just producing books producing special edition versions yeah, exactly you know, exactly versions with prints yeah. and it sounds like this you know this journey that you've gone on you can see that there is always going to be a market for people that are not just interested in the magazine but there are supplements to come with it and it's it's niches it you really know is, yeah. and the thing about digital is that uh, it's made niches more accessible and more uh, to and, and more visible if you like um and i think you know that's that's what happened really you know from the millennium to to where we are now and that's right it's really kind of like 2003 2004 that's kind of where i sort of pinpoint Mm. you know that that revolution where the digital cameras were you know they had high enough resolution exactly yeah if not better film and so how did that change things uh GMC and with, with those oh, magazines. Oh, gosh. Yeah, no, I mean, this is the thing. In, in all my publishing experience, I've had to cope with, you know, two major sort of technological revolutions, really, you know, like, you know, going from hot metal to cold metal. So, you know, the arrival of the desktop computer, etc., yeah. and that sort of thing. Um, and then, of course, you know, digital, when, you know, people are still trying to hang on to their film, but they realise now I've got to switch. Yeah. But that had you know, implications, you know, in uh, magazine publishing as well. So, you know, everyone virtually had to retrain on what they do. You know, the, uh, you know, pe- designers especially were, were frightened about the change yeah, because right. they, they really had to basically say goodbye to a whole set of skills and relearn new that's ones. That's right, yeah, not just with photographers, but, you know, I was talking with David Brimble about mm. that on the last podcast about... Um, you know, publishers retraining, designers retraining, learning different software, you know, yeah. Clark Express was the thing. Clark the Express, and, yes. And, you know, now the world of Adobe has taken yeah. over all of that also with film yeah. editing, um, of, of course, Photoshop, and now InDesign, which just makes everything so much more yeah. simple to lay out and, and design. So, outdoor photography, black and white magazine, how many years were you were Well, there? we launched outdoor photography in the year 2000. Yeah. Um, and obviously, yeah, I edited it um, to until two thousand seven, mm-hmm. um, because I, I basically got promoted within the company because outdoor photography was such a success. Like within two or three issues, it was the most successful magazine in the stable, uh, and they thought, ah, oh, yeah, this this is wow, this is working. And so they coming back to me saying, oh, let's we want to do another photography magazine. I said, okay, I've got just the one for you. Convincing them to do black and white photography was a lot harder. Right. But I think because OP was such a success, they thought, well, you know, he, let's trust him. Just got to take the risk. Let's take yeah. the risk, and it is different. And you have a pretty good track, track record. Well, <laughs> and there was nothing else out sure. there like that, not even in Europe. Right. And... Um, so, you know, to this day, so black and white followed in 2001. So, you know, 15 years later, black and white photography is still the only photography magazine in Europe Amazing. devoted to the black and white image, yeah. which I think is incredible. Um, and I'm very, very proud of that. And I've watched from afar now how it's developed. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it really does, you know, stand alone. It's doing... Uh, a job like no other magazine it's a beautiful magazine it really is in fact both magazines you know and I talked to Steve Watkins yeah. you know the current editor and, and, and Liz at Black and White about how nice it is to see a magazine with so little clutter 
Yes. Know, really, yeah. It's kind of like book design, isn't it? It's yeah. all about the image. Well, it's, Matt, it's really interesting. You know, um, the I think a lot of the credit has to go to the two designers yeah. on those magazines. Um, you know, Joe Chapman on, on outdoor photography and Toby Haig on black and white photography. Toby was, he was working on one of the woodworking magazines. At this okay. stage, I... You know, I was editorial director of the company, so I had to relinquish editing OP. Um, Liz was already obviously editing black and white and, you know, continues to do so. And um, and I saw Toby and I, I don't know, he was doing, obviously working on a completely different type of magazine, but I was watching him as a designer, you know, just seeing how he works, how he was using images and his, and, and particularly typography. Right. And I thought, this guy, I've got to free this guy. He's good. He's really good, but he will be able to express himself even better and more creatively, and really show off his talents if he gets and a photography can, magazine. You can really see that. And I was able to take him off, and give him black and white photography. So that was a little bit of political nice. maneuvering there, uh, and you know he has prospered ever since. He, you know, I can't speak highly enough of, of the man. Great. Um, and so yeah, moving mm, on from. From there, um, you became a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. Ah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was this you know this move from from GMC was kind of beginning of more of your your freelance career and mm. sort of dipping your toe. Well, into the as book many world. as many freelancers you know will tell you this was um, you know I was made redundant you know right. five years ago, um, and I was an editorial director and yeah you know. So obviously I was made redundant. So, you know, on my birthday, um, which was, you Thanks. know, yeah, that, but that's, pub that's publishing for you. Yeah. yeah. Um, it can be quite brutal sometimes. And um, so I thought, okay, I've been, th this has happened before, the first time I went freelance, uh, but this time I'm really going to make it work for me, you know, that much wiser, mature. Yeah. And by this time as well, you've got hugely hireable skills. Yeah. Yeah. And fortunately, you know, my, fellowship at the rgs um was accepted virtually about this you know just a month or so before you know it's virtually the same summer and um and i was able to work with them you know i, I write a, a a column on photography for geographical magazine every month geographical being the magazine of the rgs uh -huh. and um but it becoming a fellow it meant you know it just gave me more access obviously to the society itself and it's an incredibly dynamic society yeah it's steeped in history the the building itself is extraordinary you know yeah, these are where really people like stanley and livingston and scott of the uh, of the antarctic and hillary you know they've all walked through those those halls you know the map room is just amazing yeah it's a really nice all, thing to be yeah, associated yeah all with. these great exploration achievements of the 19th century and 20th century basically pretty much started from from that building in in and you know Keith Wilson. I, I haven't <laughs> done much exploring but um the thing is then to be able to use their facilities to um get photography in in a probably in a better uh more visible uh status there has helped so doing uh more recently the the, the books that I have, um, like David Lloyd's uh, first book, As Long As There Are Animals, uh, he was able to launch the book at the RGS. He had his yeah. two-week exhibition at the RGS, and I was able to really, you know, 
engineer that for him. Yeah. Um, and it just ensured that what was something that was very important to him as a wildlife photographer uh, happened in absolutely the best possible way that he could have hoped for. And it was it was wonderful. It That's was... great. And actually, just going back a little mm. bit, so we're you know, yeah. moving into in, into books now. So you know, the timing's quite good. You've had all this experience in yeah. press and with magazines, and um, but you know why why books? Because they're kind of notoriously a nightmare, aren't they? I mean, yeah, they are. But you see, you know, my publishing, journalistic, photography career has been very much tied to, um, you know, you think about it. it started with daily newspapers. Then it went to weekly magazines. Then it went to monthly magazines. Uh, you see, you see a pattern slower, here. Slower, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As I get older, I'm absolutely. sort of able to slow down a bit. <laughs> but the beauty about books is because they have such a long timeline, like Remembering Elephants has been two years from idea to reality. Yeah. And so you can fit those around the more frequent, regular work. Yeah. That's what I like, like about them. Um, and if you plan and organize yourself um sufficiently well you can do that which is something that of course you really have to do you know we've just been talking about yeah. that um you know our presentation during wild screen and yeah for anyone listening now who's interested in in, in making books without a doubt planning organization <laughs> you know we both had successful crowdfunding um, platforms that help fund these books and yeah it sort of you can't underestimate the effort that goes in to that side of things yeah. as well um but yeah, so before remembering elephants, mm. uh, as long as there are animals. But you you worked on other books before that with um, the uh, very first book that I did actually. There was a bit of a gap, you know, right. while I was still at GMC doing yeah. OP and black and white. Charlie Waite, the yeah. landscape photographer. Um, he, and I've known Charlie a long time since amateur photographer days when I first interviewed him about his book Landscape in France, and we've always got on really well and he approached me about and of course by this time Charlie had already done loads of books you know he knew more about book publishing than, than most people frankly um, and but he said look Keith I'm doing another book but it's my first book of black and white landscapes and I said Charlie I, pardon my ignorance I wasn't aware that you took black and white as well he says oh yes and I print it all myself as well because all wow. of his books up to then had been colour right? but all the time he had been taking black and white um, photographs with his Hasselblads just as well, background. just loading up a, a roll of black and white. Yeah. And anyway, so I edited his first black and white photography book, which was In My Mind's Eye, which came out in the mid-90s, mid-1990s, published by GMC. Right. So that was the first book experience, editing experience. Right, and then yeah. this, this is what I'm also interested in as, as, as a book editor, because I think, you know, maybe some people listening won't understand the role of, you know, what does a yeah, book editor do? Yeah, that's a good do? question. You know, you're not designing it, you're yeah. not photographing yeah. it. So what, yeah. what does a book editor do to Yeah, it's, it's, it is actually a very important role, even though when you look at the book, you probably aren't even aware of the role the editor has played. But then, you know what, when you look at a daily newspaper, you're not really aware of, what role the editor has played. His byline or her byline is not there anywhere. But by, you know, they're the most important person. And it's it's kind of similar um, with, with a book, as, with editing a book as well. Yes, you are in the background. This is, you know, this is Charlie Waite or this is Jonathan Critchley or David Lloyd. You know, this is their book. But 
you are sort of, you're like the film director, I suppose, in a way, yeah. in that you're helping them with picture editing. You know, one of the best things I ever learnt on the Melbourne Herald was was to work with the picture editor and to write captions for the uh, for the press photographers for the pictures that were, were going into the newspaper to see how they were cropped, yeah. what page they were going in, whether on the front page or is it the sports picture on the back page, this sort of thing. That was my first real live experience of picture editing and and all the things that go with that. So all that and then being able to use it and you're doing that, you know, on a weekly basis for a magazine like Amateur Photographer, it's the same thing. It's about choosing the picture and deciding how to use it. And then you do it with a book. So when you're working with a photographer, obviously they've got an idea in their mind's eye, but it's probably not the finished article. And you're that second pair of eyes, but you've also got to keep them almost like to script. That's right. You've got to help them construct at the end of the day, a visual narrative. That's and, right. And so we many... all know that the worst editors are photographers so, of their own work. <laughs> so I keep hearing, and yet, you know what? It's not actually a phrase I've ever used, right. even though I've I've heard it often enough myself. Um, I think it's tr- up to a point you can sure. say that, but I think you could say that about anyone who's actually... You could say that about a novelist. You know, novelists still have an editor. Of course, yeah. And so you do need... Uh, if you like, for want of a better phrase, that disciplinarian um, by your side who's actually helping you to make the right decisions. Of and there's no way that you're going to be as emotionally attached. You're, exactly. You're making, you're making decisions. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're, you're basically being the viewer of the book and yeah. you're kind of getting into the mindset of the people that are going to buy this and that are going to share it. Exactly. And with books like, you know, the coffee table fine art photography books that, you know, that I, I do where it's really about pictures on a page. And it's not like, you know, we've got reams of text here as well to tell, help tell the story. You've got to arrange it, position it, size it, so that it's in an order where, even if it's subliminal, there is a, there is a natural flow and rhythm and there is a story being told to the reader as they go through it. And um, so... Work a photographer working with an editor who is you know adept at that at reaching that point is really really crucial to the finished article, um, and so you know I get nervous when I hear about a photographer who is particularly if they're doing their first book like that but they are, haven't really got someone else who is by their side you know as an editor if, um, even if it's not necessarily an editor in name only but just giving them that other alternative view yeah um and of course when you're self-publishing as, as we've learned it's yeah. not you, you need you know um i can't remember the you know on the list of the of the from triple kite publishing <laughs> yeah like you know get other experts yes to help you out yes. and that's not just you know designers and, and book production mm. people but a really good editor can can really really help yeah there are three three primary areas there's no doubt about it um editor designer and uh, you know the the production guru, if yeah. you like, production manager who knows about the technical realities of having everything pre press ready. That's right. How it's needed for for the printer and knows yeah, about color management. No, you can't. You can't because it's 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 a very complicated business, and it has to be absolutely done correctly if you're to get the best finished job when that ink hits the paper. Absolutely right. Speaking about doing it correctly, 
we yeah. sort of slowly come to an end here. Oh, <laughs> final question, was it? Well, not quite yeah. yet. Yeah. I mean, okay. you know, I want to I want to wrap this up. I'm aware yeah. we've got other work to do. Um, remembering elephants is mm. a really nice way mm. of, of of finishing this podcast because um, I came. I was lucky enough to come and, and see the exhibition and meet you there. And, um, you know, I've been really inspired by that story. And it's a, oh, a, thank a, you. a, a thank wonderful you. story, a wonderful book um, Keith has produced uh, with others, of course. And, um, you know, tell us a little bit about that project, because obviously it's not just a fo- another photography book about <laughs> elephants. This is very innovative. It's very conservation focused. So can you tell yeah, us a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, you know, be as brief as I can, because it's, it's such a different book in so many ways. Um, you know, one, it's not just one photographer's work. It's, mm-hmm. it's the photographs by 65 different wildlife <laughs> photographers. Wow. Um, each has donated at least one image. You know, there's several have donated, um, a couple and the, the book starts with, um, a sequence of six images, which is showing the birth of an elephant in the wild. Amazing. A wonderful set Amazing. of photographs by, by Daryl Balfour. To, okay, yeah. I have to interrupt okay. you because, you know, right off the bat, I'm thinking, you know, it's hard enough working with one photographer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Or her images, but yeah. you're having to kind of pull in 65 different I know. photographers. You know, this is a, I'm, there is a, there's a narrative here with your life, Keith, of just really going and doing things the hard way, <laughs> diving in head first and creating yes. problems for yourself. But yeah. you, you seem to pull it off. Well... You must yeah. be good at, at, at negotiating with photographers. Well, you know, fortunately, you know, I've spoken very much about how the editor, you know, has to be there with the photographer. But, you know, you know, it's Margot and myself. You yeah. know, this this was Margot's idea, very much Margot's baby, and um, and I'm her editor. Um, so it was a slightly different... Well, yeah, no, it's a similar relationship to what I had with David and sure. Jonathan and, and Charlie. But... Um, but between us, we work very much, you know, as a team in terms of nominating the photographers, getting them in, choosing the images. Um, but yeah, you're right. You know, it's, it's, it can be hard enough working just with one photographer <laughs> to make sure that they're very happy at every yeah, step we of the can process. Be a bit precious, can't we, us well, yeah, rightly so too, because, you know, once the book's printed, that's it, you know, yeah. it's there for life. And, uh, 65, you know, I can't praise the photographers enough for their trust and faith that they placed in us because it wasn't a case that um, they were then badgering us wanting to know, uh, you know, how we were using their picture, you know, what page is it appearing on, how big is it going to be, yeah. this sort of thing. Can I see a proof even mm. before you go to press? Like, you they trust me on this one. They absolutely did. They were magnificent. Um, and that is such a strong expression of faith. And, you know, we're talking about eight of them were... Uh, uh, past overall winners the wildlife photographer of the year competition yeah. so you know we're talking about serious names here and so that that was great um but then of course you know you, you're also thinking you know I, I mentioned it today in the you know in the seminar that um there were 12 different formats as well so when you're coming to lay out a book most photographers you know there's just probably no more than about two or three different formats that you might be working with sure. when it comes to the design of the book you know I, I looked at the different sizes of the images i had and, you know, I was deciding the final, you know, exactly how big they were to be used, whether they were going to be, you know, bled off the page or contained on a right-hand yeah. page, where would they be placed in the, in the gutter. All that came down to me. And, uh, 
And you just sort of think, how can I maintain the flow, the visual rhythm of this with so many different formats? Yeah. Anyway, I think I pulled it off. Uh, and at the same time, um, make sure there was a visual narrative there, not told by one photographer, but, but by 65 photographers yeah. who had no idea where their picture would be used or how it would be used. <laughs> but then have faith that at the end of it, yes, there would be a beginning, there'd be an end, and we would have pretty much most of the aspects of yeah. an elephant's life covered by the images in between. Well, I think you're being very humble because I think <laughs> you pulled it off with bells and whistles because, um, you know, for those who don't know, um, the Remembering Elephants book was a Kickstarter campaign which yeah, yeah. reached its goal in the first 24 hours. Which yeah, that was phenomenal. That was, a new, that was a new experience for me, even though David did a Kickstarter campaign, yeah. but I wasn't as heavily involved with that. Sure. You know, that was very much about him because he had to fund the money. He had to obviously find the way yeah. he was going to fund the publishing of this book. When it came to Remembering Elephants, it's very much about Margot and myself saying, okay, this is the target. This is what we need to make this happen. Yeah. And if we didn't get that target, which was £20,000, um, the book wouldn't have happened. No. It just would have been another wonderful idea that disappeared. So you know? what was it like on that first... I mean, what a rush on that first day. <sighs> that was extraordinary. Yeah. Because we... Frankly, I had no idea whether we'd get 20000 or if we did get the target, how long it would take. Yeah. And, um, you know, and that, that 20000 basically would cover all the costs of the printing, production, shipping, everything, everything to do about producing the book. Because yeah. um, we, we didn't want any there to be any overheads from the copies that were bought by people. We wanted every penny of the pound that was spent buying these books to go to the... the uh, anti-ivory um, and elephant and, conservation and projects. that's something that we haven't mentioned yet, actually, yeah. that, you know, the, the beautiful thing about this whole book project and really nice exhibition um, mm. that you had in London was that, you know, every penny yep. of the book... Every, yep. the, 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 and the, the print sales. Book, and all the print sales yep. went to on-the-ground yeah. um, work to... Yeah, and we're, we're looking at over £100,000 now. Uh, and none amazing. of that's being lost or soaked up in administration costs, overheads, bureaucracy. No, Wonderful. that, you know, hand on heart, every penny of that money is going directly to these four designated elephant conservation and anti-ivory yeah. um, projects that we've, we've specified working with Born yeah. Free. And that's and, something I think, yeah. I, personally, that I'm really attracted to that kind of fundraising. I mean, yeah. you know, I think, obviously, big NGOs, WWF, Greenpeace, whatever, of course they have their place, they do really important work, but there's something about knowing that your money is going to projects directly on the ground, you know, with very little ad administration involved is a, is a really attractive thing. And probably my guess is why it was such a big success. Too. I think you're absolutely right. I think that was very, it was very important to me and to Margot, but more importantly, it was absolutely vital for everyone who was buying into this idea. They wanted to know, because the book's £45 a yeah. copy, you know, it's not cheap. Um, but you know, all of that money, you got to think about, okay, look, it's not just a book. I'm actually donating £45 here to help save elephants to ensure that they are going to be around for, for more than 20 years hence, that, you know, we are going to be able to curb, if not completely, uh, cease ivory poaching yeah. um, so that they've got a chance. And yeah. in which case, when you look at it solely like that, actually, it's not a lot of money. No. And what you get for it is a wonderful volume of fantastic photography, wildlife photography, by some of the, you know, the best 
exponents of the craft out there. Yeah. And um, well, that's brilliant. And while, yeah. while we're on mm. that, why don't you? Um, I mean, tell us, you know, where because this obviously this book is <laughs> yeah. not available in the shops, but it's a good no, opportunity because I, I mean, it's sold very, very well. I know you've just got you, know, you printed two and a half thousand. I know there's only a few hundred left, but correct. It's a good yeah. opportunity to let us know where, yeah, we, can, where we can buy it. Yeah, it is. It is because I'll also put it up in the show notes after, and there'll be Please. links to it. Because, yeah, you, you won't be able to get it in Waterstones or Foils or Smiths or even... Obviously, because they'll want their cut. Um, exactly. <laughs> that's, and once someone else wants their cut, then that's money that could have gone to the elephants that won't be. Yeah. And that's the last thing we want. So it's only available through the Remembering Elephants website, which, of course, is www.rememberingelephants.com. And, uh, you know, you go straight to order here and uh, there you go. Brilliant. Um, and there are a hundred copies that uh, the Natural History Museum okay. are, are doing, and but they're doing it purely on our terms. Again, yeah. they're not getting anything. The money's going of their sales so, is going straight to to the charities. Win 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 all round. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, let's hope so. It's it's certainly looking that way. That's yeah, it's fantastic. Really inspiring story. And Keith, thanks so much. I want to wrap up um, with a question I'm going to ask all my. Oh, with you know possibly young people listening to this and yeah. that are interested in making their own book getting into photography getting into writing getting into publishing mm. you know i mean you've got such a broad skill set you know just you know a little nugget of advice or some kind of encouragement of mm. you know what especially in this day and age where there's so much competition but there are outlets as well you know what would be a kind of you know a nice piece of advice that you could give uh, a, a budding potential bookmaker don't give up yeah. um you've got to play the long game and which is a hard thing to say in today's society where um everything seems to be even more and more about instant gratification and achieving short-term targets and but no with with um producing books and exhibitions producing a body of work of photography that is going to be seen beyond your your own eyes you've got to play the long game you've got to plan things out and you've uh, but you've also got to make it different yeah to what has already appeared and you know this one of the you know going back to dare i say it remembering elephants you know elephants it's not like elephants haven't been photographed many, That's many right. times before. That's but one of the most pleasing things I have heard from listening to people flicking through the book is they're not bored. They're absolutely engrossed. And they feel like they're seeing pictures of a very familiar, iconic subject that they haven't seen before. And that's what you've first got to do, try and achieve with your own photography. Uh, it may seem with so much imagery, you know, around us and being taken every day that might seem like an impossible task it's not yeah you you have to you know find your love and um and pursue it and and really just focus on it not be distracted off it and persist and persist and keep at it until and, and also be tough on yourself um in terms of what you deem as being acceptable or still fitting the theme or the subject area that you're pursuing. And then just, yes, build it up, build it up. And while at the same time, keeping your eyes open to um, innovative ideas and other perspectives. I think it's very important to look at other people's work. It doesn't have to always. be always. Yeah. And, you know, if you're a wildlife photographer, it doesn't mean just looking at wildlife pictures. 
No. You know, you could be looking at reportage, yeah. street photography, because at the end of the day, it's about, you know, the, the, the play of light on the subject and how you capture it. Absolutely. And it's about being inspired, not necessarily in the field that you're working. I mean, certainly, you know, we've both seen a couple of shows now at the World Screen Film mm. Festival. Um, and I'm inspired, you know, I'm kind yes. of buzzing, ready to yes. sort of, you know, go out and, you know, carry on with the projects that I'm working on. Yeah. And I think that you're right, it is, it's really important to to look at what else is out there and, yeah. and see if you can can find that niche. Absolutely. You know, don't go out there trying to copy a photograph that's already been taken because you won't succeed. No. Uh, and if you do, even if you do succeed, people say, well, yeah, but, oh, that looks just like such and such as picture, doesn't it? And well, in which case, what was the point? You've, yeah, it's about striving for originality and authenticity. And if you can do that, then immediately, okay, you've probably got something of worth that can then, yes, be considered for a book or an exhibition. But you gotta, you got to get that content right uh, first and, and get it enough of it and pretty much as unique as you can make it. And then you can think about, okay, do I do a book? And use a good editor. And use a good editor and a good designer, I have to stress, <laughs> and a good production manager. They're the three key roles. But, you know, as I said, I mean, you know, uh, in today, you know, some of the two of the photographers I've worked with uh, to, to do their books, they've both, they've each had another skill that's been relevant to producing a book. David was, uh, you know, a, a creative designer uh, uh, for an ad agency. Uh, so he obviously had some good, graphic design school the skills um already and um jonathan critchley was uh, a marketing director for a sports brand in france so he knew about a little bit about the marketing side you know how to get a product to an audience yeah which at the end of the day you've got to be able to do with your book too so yeah it and i think a lot of photographers do actually have another if you like secondary skill that is relevant to the book uh, publishing process they probably don't even realize that's it just what i was going to say even if they don't know it i think yeah. it, it, uh, it must be in there somewhere because inherently yeah. photographers are entrepreneurs so they have yes. that yes. even though they might you know be shy or feel like they're not good at that type yeah. of thing it's if they believe in their art and their craft and of course they're within there there's a reason to put stuff out whether it just be on the web or social yeah. media, they obviously want to reach an audience. So I think you're right there. I think all of us photographers do have that. Mm. Certainly I, I, I found that within myself, you know, with yeah. my first book that, you know, I wasn't necessarily the guy that would stick my neck out. But when I believed in my book and I really wanted to do it, you're kind of forced to do that. It didn't really yeah, come exactly. naturally, but um, yeah. yeah, it's there. But no, it's great, really fantastic advice. And mm. Once again, thanks so much Thank for you. taking the time. It's been no really, really good talking to you. And um, yeah, I feel like it, a real privilege um, <laughs> so early on. And um, Keith now got to get on with some... I've got a deadline to meet. got a deadline to meet. So we're going to leave him in peace <laughs> and uh, catch up with him a little bit later um, at the Wild Screen Awards. So thanks again. Thank you, Matt. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. What a great guy and such a wealth of knowledge and experience. I found myself so engrossed in what Keith had to say, it's probably why I forgot to ask him about the Wild Planet Photo magazine. Anyway, all of which means I'll have to get him back on the podcast in 2017 to talk about that and much more. So if you'd like to find out more about Keith 
uh, best place to look him up is on Facebook he's pretty active there and also if you want to learn more about the incredible Remembering Elephants project you can visit rememberingelephants.com um, amazingly they've already sold out of the first edition of the book but they do still have some of the special edition books available which look really beautiful I was just looking at them today um, if you'd like to find out more about me hopefully you already know because you've come through the podcast page my website is matthewmoran.com I have a new shop um, with lots of prints, cards and my two books and my own special edition version book up there as well um, I have a workshops page you can come and join me on a photography workshop on Hampstead Heath and my blogs I'm always trying to update with new content challenge myself as well on social media with Twitter and Instagram my handles are at Matt Moran photo and on Facebook it is Matthew Moran photography so I'm going to try and keep up with these at least one a month to begin with uh, thanks so much for listening please share it amongst your friends you can download and subscribe also on iTunes and stay tuned for more um, my next guest I will be publishing at the end of January I hope you're all having a great Christmas and wishing you all a very happy new year all the best